morning, folks. So we are gathered here today for a very special discussion with a very special guest who is coming back to continue our conversation from a previous episode. But before we get started, let me give you a disclaimer because some of the things that may be discussed on this podcast may include trauma of all sorts to include all types of abuse. Viewers and listeners may find it unsettling and triggering. The guests on our live streams reflect a diverse set of values, morals, and ethics that may not reflect the morals, values, and ethics of the misfit Amish. If this lies live stream causes you distress, please seek support from your trusted folks and qualified mental health professionals as needed. Also, please stop listening until you are in a better place and space and able to listen again. With that being said, welcome to this episode of Coffee with Rhoda. Good morning, Rhoda. Good morning. How are you doing? I am doing really well. I've been so excited for this. It's been like the highlight of my week. I've kind of had a rough week, but I've been so excited for this. I think I'm hearing a little echo. Oh my. Maybe not. Not enough to be worried about. Well, I'm not hearing an echo unless I talk and you're not muted. So that like causes anyways, but regardless technology, right? Isn't it a wonderful thing because we get to have coffee together and we're like across the the country from each other. Like we're not even close to each other, but regardless, sorry, you had a rough week. Um, Sometimes that does happen and it can be a lot to deal with. Like just, yeah. So I've been looking forward to this coffee because I want to ask Rhoda what Mennonite dating customs she's used to. I just really want to, I have to get that out of the way. I have to know because I'm nosy. (laughs) Okay. So um, the biggest Mennonite dating custom that comes to mind that I think is across the board for plain Mennonites. um, I have not heard much variation of this is, well, there's kind of two that go together. For it to be official, the the guy has to ask the girl's father before they begin dating. Now, my understanding is that in mainstream American culture, that conversation sometimes happens before engagement. But for Mennonite couples, that happens before they begin dating. There is some variation in how that happens, though, how that conversation goes. So some circles of Mennonites the dude will go to his dad or his pastors, his preach ministers, ministers is the correct term. And then those ministers will go to the girls ministry and they will discuss whether the spiritual health of these two um, are compatible. If both are mature enough for marriage or to seriously consider marriage. And then they will have a conversation with the girl's dad and then the girl's dad will have a conversation with the girl. And so by the time they go on their first date, uh, all of these men in positions of power already know of his interest in her. And I say his interest in her because as a female raised in conservative Mennonite circles, the push was not so much for there to be a shared interest, but for there to be a shared agreement that this was God's will. So... A girl could turn down a guy for no reason other than I felt like God wanted me to say no. Um, so that's that's the official way to go about dating. That said, if it sounds complicated and fraught with potential for misunderstanding and ill will, it's because it is. So there's this other thing called barnyard dating, which the or backyard dating. So I've I've heard both. The implication of that is that these young people have an interest in each other. They're less concerned about um, checking off the religious expectation boxes, and they're more concerned just with spending time with each other because they love being together. And so they hang out informally, but they spend so much time together that it would be considered excessive for a friendship. And even friendships between... Uh, opposite genders are 
I'm sorry? I didn't say anything. It's just my face saying things. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, so even friendships between opposite gender people um, are frowned upon. And um, so they, they kind of have this informal thing going on. And from there, once that relationship has solidified and they are certain that they want to move forward, then they'll go through the other pro processes. Um, I have a, a really unpleasant memory, sort of, from my childhood that I was, I was too young to understand all of the dynamics perfectly, but it was well known in um, our church that these teenagers had an interest in each other and that they'd had an interest in each other from when they were rather young. And so what the ministry would do, in order to have a justification for saying that you're not ready to date yet, they, they needed some reason for that. They couldn't just like say that because that would look like ill will. So they would put him on proving for six months, and then at the end of the six months, release him from proving. And my memory, like I think they went back and forth between the two of them. Hold on, I have a visitor. Hey. Yeah. Can you ask Clark if he can switch with you? I yeah. Can. I'm sorry. It's a big disappointment. No, my computer's not really working very well right now. No. Um. But they they kind of ping ponged back and forth between which person they kept on proving is my. My, like, I was very young when this was going going down. Like, I, I would say I was probably under the age of 10. And so finally, these two people both moved out of state um, as singles to a church that did not put them through that pro process. And they ended up getting married. And they have a beautiful family now. And it, it was just, it was because this whole thing of, uh, courtship or dating they would call they prefer the term courtship because I guess it sounds holier I'm not sure um, but this thing of dating based on interest primarily interest rather than based on you know a process of fasting and praying and God telling you um, it, it it seemed unusual I guess to the leadership there and so they really it they tried to squelch it now I would love to ask those people how accurately I my childhood mind interpreted what was going on but yeah that's Mennonite dating I'm I'm sorry like I'm I'm sorry what like just like I'm I'm sorry like like I can't even like first off I I mean like you're you're talking about like one you're you're having this like where it's it's based on interest but it's also like so worldly and like it's it's also like so vastly different rhoda and and we have a slight technical issue that i have to report on so let me get back to that in a second um if you're trying to watch this broadcast on facebook um it has not been streaming to Facebook. And I'm about to post a link for people. And I will upload the video later. For all of you who wish to look, uh, listen or watch on Facebook. Regardless, at the end of the day, what you're talking about is like you're talking about like this perception from a very young age like this is how it is and and not only like does like do you have to have this interest but like the the ministry has to approve both his ministry your ministry and then your parents like where's your bodily autonomy and and freedom to make decisions um is it that's that's like a human right you know that right like like it's a human right to be able to marry freely 
So would you, do you feel like that violates that right? Well, I would say that it's definitely more in keeping with cult-like behavior to have that level of control over someone's life. Because really and truly, your um, significant other, your significant other, that decision is a, a decision that impacts your faith for the rest of your life, your finances. It impacts um, most likely how far you will go in your career, depending if there's, I mean, you can't just make career choices based on yourself. You have to consider the other person and their career. Um, and so I, I think that does give a lot of power to people who really have no business holding that much power. Now, I say that, but I also need to clarify that not everyone involved in these decisions is power hungry. And so there's, there are stories of daughters and dads having the conversation and the daughter just tells the dad straight up, like, I don't like the dude. And the dad takes that into consideration and considers that reason enough to say no. Um, so there are definitely stories of, of there being more concern for the, the woman's voice in that. But still, the way it's set up, if you are considered a nobody in the church, maybe because you are poor or um, your family is poor or your parents, you know, in the last two decades have been on church discipline for God knows why. Um, if there's any of that going on, then you end up being paired or not paired with people. And I really think they wouldn't say that it comes down to social standing, but it kind of does. Like it's um, the church leaders' kids and those who are close friends of the church leaders' kids are more likely to form marriages. But then the people who are on the outskirts of the community, those are left for each other. And so if there's an interest between a preacher's kid and someone who's on the outskirts of the community, that is not as likely to happen is, yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you this, like, what would happen if a girl inadvertently is pregnant and is not married? Hypothetically. Hypothetically speaking, um, I'm aware of elopements. Um, I'm not sure that that was due to pregnancy or if it was just because the barnyard dating got pretty intense and they felt like there's no way they're going to um, wait for all of the approvals to come through. Plus, after you get approval, then you have to date typically no less than six to eight months before you may get engaged. And after that, of course, then you still have some more months to plan the wedding. And so if they felt like the attraction was too intense um, and they really wanted to not have sex until after they were married, but things were progressing rather quickly. I don't know what the reason is behind all of the elopements, but I would guess that that's the first step. Um, I am aware of one girl who was pregnant out of wedlock and um, she, they ended up not, not marrying um, she had the baby and they ended up needing to um, change communities because the community she had the baby in like two or three years after the baby was born, um, the, the community was still like holding it over her and um, she was, she was a minor. Oh I, I don't really think it's appropriate for me to say much more than that because people who know me can fairly quickly figure out who it was. Um, the community that she went to, then was much more accepting and welcoming of her. Um, yeah, but what you're, what I'm hearing, just to be clear, what I'm hearing is that somebody who became pregnant out of wedlock, what you observed is that they, they lost social status and they um, had to move to a, new community and they had to like seek like support outside of that community they literally had to go find a different environment because of the loss of social status inside of the community where this transpired now yes. what, what about the person who engaged in impregnating this person 
Um, they were sent to a different community as well. And um, there, there were factors involved that these individuals could not legally marry. Um, I'm not sure how much I want to say. On, on don't, don't. That, okay. Yeah. It, it, like marriage was not an option. I have no doubt that if marriage was an option, they would most likely have been practically forced to marry. Um, I, I have not heard of Mennonite girls openly admitting to abortions. However, I have heard repeatedly of um, people talking about like people who live or work near abortion clinics saying that they do see Mennonite girls go into abortion clinics. And so that in like, I, I'm not going to be naive enough to say that um, it doesn't happen in the Mennonites, even though I, it's more believable for me to say that I don't believe Mennonite girls who experience abortions or um, have abortions or are forced to have abortions. It's much more believable for me to say that they are not comfortable discussing their abortion experiences than it is to say that they don't discuss them because they don't have them. I do think abortion happens um, in Mennonite circles um, with young girls. I, I do think so. Can I ask you this? Are you aware that when I shared my own personal experience last, last July when Roe versus Wade was overturned, with abortion, are you aware that there were multiple Mennonite survivors who reached out to me and shared that they had experienced abortion or they had even witnessed or known of abortions? I didn't know that, but it doesn't surprise me at all. I, I feel like um, in advocacy, we're in a space where if you stand up and say, this is my experience, you automatically end up giving permission to hundreds, if not thousands of others to go, oh, yeah. and. Like abortion is not my experience, but I, I have friends who have had abortions, and um, yeah. I, I've had friends who who are very staunch supporters of it, and friends who deeply regret it. And to to all of them, I would say, you know, those there's there's a grief that comes with abortion, no matter what your political stance on it is, and. It, it just breaks my heart when someone says they've had an abortion and then they feel as if they're not allowed to grieve that loss. Like, it is a loss. And if you went into that abortion um, thinking that this would never, like, not knowing how this came to this, especially if you were underage and it was forced on you, that is a, a deeply traumatic loss. And I'm so sorry. Yeah. I, I just wondered if you were aware of that, uh, regardless of where you stand. But would you like to hear the flip side of, again, why Mennonites aren't Amish? Please. Let me, let me share with you. Like, so I lived in five different Amish communities. Now, the first one, when we moved out of that community, I couldn't tell you what their specific dating practices are. The second one, I witnessed and heard and observed bundling being practiced. They practice bundling. Do you know what bundling is? What is bundling? It, it sounds like it's people bundling together. <laughs> so we we didn't have, like in all of the communities that I lived in, like we didn't have Rumspringa as a popular narrative exists. What we said is people went with the young folks. That's how it translates. That is correct. It is accurate to say people went with the young folks. So people would start going with the young folks in that community at approximately 16, 17 years of age. Question. Going with the young folks, I understand it starts while they're underage. Does that include spending time with unmarried adults? Sometimes. You might get a 16-year-old who may be dating somebody that is, or going steady with somebody that is like 20 or 21 or 22 or, you know, you might. You might also get a 16-year-old going steady with somebody that is 16. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but like our dating customs, 
were vastly different from what you described. And Rhoda, quite frankly, I am horrified that you had to get your ministry's approval and your, like, all of that. Like, that's not how this works. Like, so that is not every church. That right, was true. But plenty. And if even in churches where that is not an official part, if the ministry disagrees, they will have conversations with the dating couple and or parents involved. Wow. Just wow. Like, anyways. So what we had was more or less like, so that, that was that community. So when I talk about going with the young folks, what I'm referring to is typically um, you would go on Sunday nights um, as you're going with the young folks, you would go to what we call the singing. And then after the singing, like the youth would, um, let's just say this guy wanted to like date this girl. So he would, he would send his friends, usually two of them, you know, gotta keep up appearances here um, to ask this girl and they would take this girl aside and say hey can can Jake take you home tonight and the girl would say yes or no and and then like if she said yes then like um, he would go hitch up his horse like they would go back and tell the guy and he would go hitch up his horse and she'd go put on her like bonnet and outerwear garb that you're supposed to wear whether it's summer or winter whatever is appropriate and he'd pull up and wait in his as after he hitched up his horse he'd pull up in his horse and buggy and sit there waiting for her to come out and she'd go trot on out there and get into his buggy and they off they go riding down the road to the girl's house okay like that's one two like the factors to consider when somebody asks you is like oh well you know do they come from a good family like your parents still can tell you like don't don't that he he, he just doesn't come from a good family you know um, and then when they got to the house, so like, here's where like the various practices came into play. So they would come into the house, like he would take her to her home. She would get out of the buggy, go into the house, like in this community, the bundling. So she would come inside, go upstairs, go into her bedroom, put on her night dress, specially made for this occasion and get into bed he'd go hitch up the horse uh, unhitch the horse put the horse away and come into the house and climb you know go upstairs and to her bedroom and climb into bed that's called bundling so bundling is not just snuggling with somebody i take it there's like this is when, when, when well, they're not supposed to be untowards. They're not supposed to give in to the lusts of the flesh. Okay, so I think the reason, um, I actually know the reason because it was explicitly stated why Mennonite practices are the way they are is because of the number of ex-Amish in the Mennonites who would say things like, they would refer to Amish dating practices as bed courtship. Is that a phrase that Amish even use? We probably don't. I mean, possibly. But they would be... Begin as bed normal, okay? Like, like we wouldn't... The <coughs> bundling in and of itself was originally... Its origins is literally because it was cold. It was practical to, to snuggle under the covers to keep warm. Okay, so as society evolved and changed, like society changed some things, like some people would put a board in the middle, other people would not, regardless, like that was considered like a way to to keep warm, right? Um, but yes, yes, bed courtship. Bed courtship is also known as bundling. Okay, so yeah, that, that explains then some of the extreme Mennonite rules because of the, the fear of um, this couple who's in love having sex or crossing any type of physical boundary. So like all of the don't hold hands, even sometimes in engagement pictures. Um, 
yeah. The like just keep keep miles apart. This is about marriage. This isn't about your body. This is about God's will. This isn't about your attraction. I think it's an overreaction to where some of um, the ex Amish came from. Um, that they impose those rules, but so uh, I can't get out of my head the picture of a 16-year-old um, in bed with a 21-year-old or a 22-year-old, and that just really it it breaks my heart. Um, is there? Would you say that in that community there's a power dynamic attributed to age, to where like would a 16-year-old fully feel free to tell two guys no if they're asking on behalf of, say, a popular 21-year-old? There is. There's always outliers. There's always people who go against the grain, right? But by and large, I would say that women in that community specifically and AFAB people in that community specifically did not have the freedom to really say no. Um, I know that some of them did, but they didn't really have the freedom to say no, if you get what I'm saying. It was what very much. If she says no. Well, everybody's going to talk about it. Everybody's going to talk about it. Everybody's going to know about it. And if the community can apply enough pressure, they might like make them do this anyways. And like, I know that there's, again, there's always outliers, right? There's always people who are a little different. I know a woman in that community who like, oh Lordy. She did not comply with, with like that kind of rules. Like she never got married, but they also called her like an old maid and the way they talked about her. And it was like, she, she didn't really have like a voice, even though she fought back against that type of mentality. And she did within the community. Um, people also judged her for that very harshly. But the other part is, is that I also observed teenagers, sometimes underage, becoming impregnated and then having to marry that person. But we're not going to talk about that today. We just, we just don't have to talk about that, huh? So um, I'm aware of one situation in the Mennonites where we don't know for sure, but basically um, the, the pregnant woman and the person who then became known as the mother um, sequestered themselves from the community for a lengthy period of time. And so we don't know for sure who was actually the pregnant one. We don't know for sure that this other girl had the baby and then it, the married woman took the baby on as her own. Um, do things like that ever happen in the Amish circles? Are you aware of teenage girls who are too young to get married um, who, like, who have the baby and then the mom, either the girl's mom or some other lady in the community, basically acts as if she was the one who was pregnant and that's her baby? I... Um... Yes, actually, I know of a 14-year-old who, in fact, was impregnated by somebody where marriage was not possible. But that's, I'm really uncomfortable talking about that because that's not my story. All I can tell you is that I observed it, and I witnessed it, and I heard about it, and we all knew about it. It went through Amish communities like wildfire. It came out. We, I, I'm just, I am so sorry. I'm, I'm really heartbroken. Um, I think I think part of what you're seeing with like and and I just want to point on this just for a second or part of what we see is that we have so many people who quite frankly um they um they they leave the Amish communities and they go join the Mennonite churches 
and they bring that Amish influence with them. Would you say that's correct? Um, I would say that there's probably some of that, but what I saw a lot more of was bringing an overreaction to Amish um, customs. So I remember one time we young people, I say young people, I mean teenagers, we were in school, not in the youth group. Hey, um, ask Judson to put on Tom and Jerry for you, love. Mommy can't right now. Thank you. Mama can hold you, though. Um, but we, we played a card game, and there was no alcohol. There was no drugs. There was no sex. It was just a card game, and we were playing card games on a regular basis to get through the the muddy, ugly months of school, like January, February, March. And um, an elderly man at our church who was raised Amish really just did not appreciate that. And he, he's like, he, he was raised Amish. He knows what card games are about. Even if they're not connecting them to the other activities that sometimes come with card games like gambling or drugs or drinking, he doesn't want our young people even beginning to get close to that. And so what for us was just a happy pastime, like who can play Dutch Blitz the fastest, who can play Rook the fastest, um, that was outlawed because it was too Amish. Yeah, that's, so, so like, in a way, like, what you're describing is that because they came from the Amish, and what I'm hearing is that because they came from the Amish, and because often our experiences in life, they shape how we see the world and the lens within which we look at other people and the lens within which we see like what is good and what is right and what we see as as being something to adhere to. They bring this to Mennonite communities, not necessarily in like a okay, these values within the Amish, This, these are the values I had within the Amish church, so I'm going to bring them here. It's more or less like, these are the Amish values, and because of how traumatic my Amish experience was, I can't stand any of that, any semblance of that. And so they reject anything that could even possibly be good. It's kind of like, you know, that idea of like throwing the baby out with the bathwater, which I still don't understand that saying, but I've been told that a few times. It's like, oh, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Well, if you read my book, you'll see exactly why y'all like just don't understand Amish culture. Like I just I just really want to put that out there. It's like, you know, I I write about the things that I experienced, but I also write about the things that kept me alive. And until I wrote my book, nobody in the world really wanted to actually share the things that kept me alive. That wasn't a thing. That wasn't the thing that media wants to hear. They just want to go and have this massive trauma dump that's what they want. But when you talk about people who haven't dissected that trauma, they haven't worked through that trauma, and then they go into this other environment and they bring the effects, the aftermath of that trauma with them. And it sounds like, in a way, your Mennonite church, which is very different, right? But it was affected very negatively by that trauma. I'm not sure if they would say that their Amish experiences were traumatic. I think the word they would use is sinful, and they were they had um, they were very very derogatory towards Amish. Like I like I would have thought Amish were just like not good people from listening to them. And then when we moved to Pulaski, Tennessee, there was an Amish community close by, and they like the Amish women there were nothing like what I had in my head as. A picture of an Amish woman like they were I don't know it was it, it was I, I think there was a lot of overreaction going on hey bud you want a cinnamon roll yes can you wait 30 minutes no not really please mom not right now my love please mom <laughs> he needs a cinnamon roll. Well, how long will well, it? Well, he needs attention. <laughs> how long will it take you to go grab him a cinnamon roll? Maybe a minute. Go grab it. It'll be okay. All right. I'll just talk to myself roll. about like you know 
the fact of like this is really really interesting i i think it's really interesting and when rhoda comes back i'm going to ask her like so like how did all of this affect like her interactions and did she find herself or ever catch herself being like wait what because it almost sounded like rhoda was going to be into like she said Amish women were not what she expected according to what she was told by these people like so like what like you've you've gotten to know me a little bit so like was I what you expected according to these women or these people um no no there's this portrayal of Amish as um being a little stupid or behind the times and really about having a lot of sex as teenagers in the youth group. And it's especially about um, the thing of having sex in courtship that is just not like there is no grace given. There is no understanding given. Um, there's no like the, the fact that um sex happens before marriage in the Amish, that is held as a reason to just get as far away from Amish culture as possible. That was my understanding of how the ex-Amish within the Mennonites viewed the Amish. And um, so as a teenager, then moving into a community that had Amish people around um, and spending time with them and getting to know them, it's like these these women are running businesses, um, like bulk food stores. Um, they are very involved in their father's businesses, behind the scenes, of course. Um, they are intelligent. They are very happy. Like, that's my memory of being around Amish women. Um, I'm not sure how much of the happiness, it, like, I don't know. It probably varies from woman to woman, like, what's genuine and what is what they needed to present to me because I was not Amish. Um, and I never saw any inappropriate behavior between young people when I was with them. But then I never also, like, I didn't go to Amish parties. So Yeah, exactly. So what you're saying is you were an outsider. And because of that, you're acknowledging that you probably saw exactly what they wanted you to see, which is true. But also, like, some Amish women are happy. And, like, you know, I'm, I'm a little terrified to ask this question, but you know, again, like you've, you've gotten to know me a little bit. You've gotten to know the kinds of things that I say. And, and I kind of want to know, like, how does it feel when I talk about Amish things versus like what you heard from the people within the Mennonite communities? Um, it just, how does it feel? I don't, I don't really assign an emotion to it so much as like I just go into processing mode and really trying to understand from your lived experiences as compared to what like the mental representation of Amish I was given and realizing that that mental representation is faulty and because this is exclusively because I was Mennonite around ex-Amish that mental representation only comes from one place, and that is ex-Amish within the Mennonites. And so that is going to be a biased representation. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a lot to unlearn. Um, and I really, I'm trying to think if the ex-Amish in my life who were Mennonite gave us the type of information about like the abuses of power and um, the, the loss of voice that Amish women experience um, or AFAB women, um, AFAB people, I don't think they did at all. Um, it, it was definitely portrayed as if um, the sex that happens in courtship, if that is consensual, 
instead of it being a thing of, okay, sometimes, you know, a 16-year-old with a 20-something-year-old, like, no, no. Um, I, I want to ask this too, but I realize that this is asking about your culture and your people, and if it's too invasive of a question, you're welcome to pass on it. Um, I'm aware of an ex-Amish couple where, like, she was his fifth partner, I think, um, because of, like, the courtship and breaking up practices in the Amish. There's an age, there was an age difference between him and some of his other girlfriends. Um, but for her, I think he was her first or second. So in Amish culture, is there like a pass given to men that they can have however many partners before they get married? And if so, is that same pass given to the girl? I mean, there is somewhat of a path, but like you will be talked about, um, regardless of whether you're a boy or a, like whether you're AMAB or AFAB, like it doesn't matter. Like you're going to be talked about if you've like broken up with like three girlfriends and you're going on your fourth one, they're going to talk about you. Wait, yeah, there's, there's going to be talk, but thank you for that analysis, Rita. I, I think like one of my big um, one of my big gripes has always been this is that like I was talk touching upon previously is that people don't want to hear that abuse doesn't always happen that abusers go in cycles that it's cycles of violence and there's honeymoon phases and there's other things like people didn't want to talk about those experiences they wanted to hear about the trauma and it almost sounds like from your lived experience within like with Amish turned Mennonites uh, that that there was a lot of conversation about the sexual sins of the youth as teenagers but there was no like discourse about the the use of power about the privilege of being born AMAB versus being born AFAB. Like, I don't think that Amish men should talk for women, period, because inside of our culture, they have sat there and they have for a long time, a lot of Amish men will literally speak over and speak for Amish women or whatever voice that they have is given to them by the man in power of them, which is where, like, I do talk about my grandmother and how, like, I was told my whole life, I'm, I mean, my whole Amish life, that I'm just like her and how, like, the thing is, is I had somebody reach out to me after they watched a video where I talked about like my grandmother and the thing that they said is that everybody knew my grandmother and everybody knew my grandmother's voice. So I just want y'all to know that even the English people knew my grandmother had a voice. So there's always outliers. You cannot sit here and say that all Amish are like this or all Amish are like that. And furthermore, when you go into the dating practices, so that was one community. We haven't even gotten into the three other communities, actually the four other communities I can tell you about because I dated somebody. I went steady with somebody from a different community. And in that community, so after, you know, he drove me home, right? Well, because he was in a different community, we would go to his home and then he would go in the living room and sit on a chair and I was supposed to go sit in his lap. <laughs> and in another community that I lived in, like their courtship practices, the youth were supposed to ride around in an open buggy so that like, you know, can't have any heavy petting, okay? But I forgot about that phrase. Yeah. <laughs> heavy petting, right? No heavy petting. But then they were supposed to go and they were supposed to sit in the in the kitchen across from each other at the table with an oil lamp on. Okay? Like that's the story. That's what we're going with. And then in another community, they were supposed to go sit at the kitchen table again. Okay? But they they didn't often have the light on. Don't worry, what happens in the dark stays in the dark. Unless there's <laughs> I'm just I'm just connecting some dots and tell me if I'm crazy here. 
so we we know that what happens sometimes in Amish communities is actually traumatic. It's a trauma to be impregnated when you're underage by someone who you could not say no to without being gossiped about. And then to have to figure out how, like, what you're going to do with the pregnancy, abortion, um, forced abortion, um, your mom pretend that she's the pregnant one and you hide away, which that's isolation, and then you lose your child and basically watch someone else parent her. Um, so if that's a... Like, that's an actual trauma, and then these people leave the Amish community and come to the Mennonites, and they don't have mental health information. They don't have enough mental health information to say that what happened to me was a trauma, so they look at it as, I sinned and got pregnant at 16, or I sinned and got a girl pregnant at 16. And so they are overreacting. They're, they're having a trauma response, but they're calling it just another sin. Uh-huh. That's, that's exactly it, Rhoda. It is a trauma response. Wow. Um. Now, I will give this disclaimer. Is that Lancaster County Amish, they practice a whole different dating custom. I will not pretend to speak for them, but I will direct you to our February 14, like 2021 broadcast, where we talk about Amish dating customs, and there were people present from Lancaster County regardless like there the point is is that there are a large variety of dating practices within a variety of Amish communities and each settlement practices different ways pretty much somewhat to an extent and they have different rules and it's not just a sexual scene if somebody conceives out of wedlock sometimes it's also a crime and when you don't have the language to describe what happened to you as a traumatic event, how do you talk about it without um, kind of demonizing the people that you, the group that you came from? Yeah. Um, and when you, well, what you said there about not having a language, it, it reminds me of a poster I saw recently that was in English and Pennsylvania Dutch, and it was naming body parts um, so that, Pennsylvania Dutch speaking children could know their body parts and know how to speak to an English person. And when it came to the body parts like vagina, vulva, um, those private parts, there's only an English word. There's not an English and a because, Pennsylvania Dutch word. Because we don't have actual specific words for our private body parts in PA Dutch. That's why. Does that come with it, the sense of these parts are no more sacred or special than the rest of my body? Or does it come with a sense of shame connected to those parts? Or does it come with a sense of these are like so special, we're not even going to talk about them? What, what is the general attitude towards private body parts? I mean... I wouldn't speak for everybody, but for me, I felt ashamed of them. I know that I wasn't supposed to feel ashamed of them. They were the body parts that I was given by the good man, the good man, also code for God. Um, but I felt very ashamed of them. But I also think that based on our experiences is going to affect how we feel about those body parts. Well, there's so much power in having open dialogues that are ongoing with your children. There's so much in that openness and transparency that just like we don't feel shame about things that we're comfortable talking about. And um, to literally not have words in your language for that, um, that in itself is a significant loss. Um, but it's the kind of loss that you don't understand as loss until you understand what could have been. Well, and, and there's two language barriers. So we don't have the words for, for like the body parts, right? But you're also talking about like, like part of me wants to say like, just stop, right? Like just stop doing this, right? But the other part of me also knows that like, these people who came and joined your Mennonite church, like they had 
in an Amish education, more than likely. And when you consider the type of education that they had, there's several ways that they experienced oppression that affected them, even in their ways of navigating their life inside of a different religion. And and that could be like as simple as like, they didn't have a framework from within which to begin discussing the trauma. They didn't have the ability to access resources to begin discussing the trauma. They didn't have the knowledge or access to information to allow them to process that this, in fact, was not okay, and that this was trauma, and that they their their feelings about it are valid. So because of that, it results in people who feel like we must uh, kind of like they they just there's there's a lack of ability to explain like what what happened and and acknowledge all the parts of their life rather than only this part that was so traumatic that it's overshadowing everything else. It's kind of like that thing that I talk about is like when you're in denial um, about your trauma and you sit there and and you put it in a box, you close that lid, it is locked tightly and it still seeps out. There is no way that the trauma that you experience will not come out. And I almost see that as like that, like the trauma came out despite their best attempts to prevent it from affecting their children, because for them, it was probably about protecting their children from what they experienced as Amish children. Yeah. 100%. That gives me, that actually helps me be a lot more compassionate to the people who were implementing rules that really frustrated my teen years um, to view it as a thing of that they were coping with their trauma the best they knew. Um, Yeah, I, something that happened in the last couple weeks, um, I saw uh, uh, one of those like 30 second clips on Instagram and I sent it to someone of Amish, like former, like someone with Amish ties. And um, it it said, if you grew up in a home with this, then you grew up with emotional abuse. And it listed five, five different ways of experiencing emotional abuse. Things like um, stop crying, I'll give you something to cry about. Um, Not talking about emotions, only allowing pleasant emotions things like that. And I asked this person, how many of these did you experience in childhood? And this person said they experienced five out of five. I'm sure that is not every Amish home. Um, but when, like, when I think of that horrible comment or um, statement by the professor um, who shall not be named. Um, yeah, we're not going to go there. Let's not open that can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I just I, I don't know how widespread emotional neglect and emotional abuse is in the Amish, but that that like if you were raised that emotions themselves are the problem, then it's going to be that much more difficult to admit that you have an emotional um, problem with the traumatic things that have happened, it's gonna be that much more difficult to get the help you need. Um, I see we're running out of time. I wanted to like can I go on a little rant about how I like how much it bothers me when people are like, well, every, like, people can all go through traumas, but some of them actually retain their faith. And so they kind of pit survivor against survivor when it comes to religious beliefs. I mean, my platform is yours. Go ahead. I, I really just want to tell people who are doing this to please stop. It, it is not helpful to anyone. It, it does not invite anyone into anything good. So if someone says, hey, um, other Mennonite women have gone through trauma and they stayed Mennonite and you, you haven't, it does not invite me into the warmth and goodness and community of the Mennonites. It invites me into comparison mode. It invites me into feeling less than. It invites me into needing to like try harder. Um, it, it doesn't invite me into anything good. And I think that can be applied to whatever belief or faith you're trying to um, rebuke someone for not retaining. Um, as a general rule, 
comparison is just not good anyways. And when you make comparison with faith, there, there are so many better ways. It's, it's so much more healthy to um, only share your faith when you truly understand it for yourself and are excited about it. So there's a huge difference between saying um, you should be a Christian because Amish and Mennonite would profess to be Christians. You should be a Christian because um, that's the best religion there is, and you're 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 doomed if you're not, and it's it's horrible. You're less than if you're not. And a difference in saying, "Hey, I've really really gotten to understand why Jesus is incredible, and I I just can't shut up about it." There's it it <clears throat> there's something amiss when the best thing we have to offer someone else is come be better than that person. Yeah. I would say this is I've actually known Amish people that didn't consider themselves Christians because Christians are of the world. Just, just so you know. So other Amish may consider themselves Christians, but some of them don't just, just a disclaimer. That is good information for me. Like most of the Amish people I was around would have professed to be biblical or, you know, Mm-hmm. But regardless, like, you know, I, I want to ask you a question at the risk of like opening a whole other can of worms before we um, go today. Uh, Let's open but, cans of worms. Let's go for it. Okay, so this is a good one. So when somebody tells you, don't pray for me non-consensually, how do you respond? I like... That's your wish. Like, I'm going to respect your wishes. Um, it's, there's, I'm sure you only came to that conclusion through a story that I have probably not heard. And so there's a part of me that is curious how that person came to that point. Um, but also there's a thing of, like, when you, when you add that non-consensually, it indicates that at some point, you felt like prayers were being forced upon you in a way that made you less than or made you feel like it made you feel like you were less than that is going to be my best guess and so why would why would i add to that um trauma so how would you feel if like people are promoting this idea that well you know i'm still going to pray for the person i'm just not going to tell them that i'm praying for them Oh, goodness. Okay, so my mouse is no longer mousing, and it's annoying me. Um, I would have to sit with that one for a while. Is that really yes. honoring the request? No, it's obviously not honoring the request. Um, there's the, the thing of... I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to have to sit with that one for a bit because if, if someone like I've, I've experienced the prayer thing both ways where the prayers were authentic and genuine and done from a position of like a genuine position of, I believe that I be, like, I believe in a God who loves this person more than I do. Um, but then there's, one, like I've 100% experienced like the condescending kind of prayers and the, that, that feels kind of condescending to be the, saying that the whole, well, you're speaking in a way that makes me uncomfortable. So this is typically what I've encountered often is that I speak in ways that makes people uncomfortable. And when I speak in ways that makes people uncomfortable, they love to pretend that I just need prayers and I just need forgiveness. And they love to tell themselves these stories because if they tell themselves these stories, as it was explained to me by somebody, if as long as they tell themselves these stories, they don't have to see themselves in my story that I shared with them. And their way of saying, like, I'm going to pray for you anyways, is a boundary violation, number one. I'm telling you that's a boundary violation. And if you can't honor my request to not pray for me non-consensually, seriously. Like, I've experienced prayers that were genuine. I have. And, and those prayers are appreciated. 
But regardless, if I ask you not to pray for me non-consensually, don't pray for me non-consensually. That is a boundary violation. I've experienced people praying for me that my life is hard. Don't, don't even. And then tell me about it. I've experienced so many things around prayers and non-consensual prayers. Again, I don't think it's right to tell survivors, I'm going to pray for you as a, as a catch-all phrase, because it feels slightly dismissive. And it feels like you're not really hearing the survivor, like the prayer is supposed to take away everything that the survivor has experienced and is experiencing currently. And so now I'm on my soapbox, Rhoda. I know. Stay on there. This is blowing my mind that people like it's sounds like what you're describing is people are using prayer and assurance as a prayer. And I'm going to pray anyways as a power move. It's like, let me pat myself on the back. This will never happen to me or my loved ones because prayers, prayers. And I've done lots of things. I'm very supportive. I pray for you. It's yeah, the- no, no, no. There's there's um, a scripture, like if you if you are using the Bible as your basis for prayer, there's a scripture that um, directly rebukes this thing of praying that someone, like if you see someone who lacks food and clothing, and you say, oh, I'm, I'm going to pray for them to be fed and clothed, and then you go your way without feeding and clothing them, that prayer is um, part of my language bullshit. So... Same way with this, like if you have in your power, if you see that there's a survivor who is struggling emotionally, they're feeling isolated, they need justice, and you don't want to take on the burden of pursuing justice with them and pursuing justice for them, and instead, you're just like, I pray for you, I'm going to wash my hands. I mean, the very Bible that gives you the basis for prayer says no. And there you have it. Thank you, Rhoda. Let me just thank you. No. Anyways, so please don't pray non-consensual prayers for survivors. They have been weaponized against many of us. And, you know, if we ask you for prayers, feel free. But if we don't ask you for prayers, don't. It is not helping anything. Regardless, if you're listening to this and you've experienced some of the things that maybe both of us have experienced, like what would you say to the, the people listening, Rhoda? Um, just in general, mm-hmm. um, I would say healing is possible. Living with hope is possible. Um, learning new ways of thinking and doing and feeling and being is possible. And um, you are not a lesser person for being at an unpleasant place in your journey. So if you're looking at your life and you're going, I am so unhealed, I am so unwell, I have this bad habit, I have this bad thought pattern, I have this horrible way of relating, I'm emotionally stunted because of emotional abuse, and you are loved right where you are. Take a deep breath and um, live as if you're loved because you are. Thank you. I would also say that I don't typically tend to talk about healing so much because for me, I consider it more or less like walking in the aftermath of trauma because it walking in the aftermath of trauma can be a lifelong journey. And the thing is, is if you can't understand how that makes sense, be grateful for the privilege that you have had in your life because you've never experienced something that is so gross and so terrifying and so horrible that it can stay with you. It can haunt your dreams at night. It can walk with you as you go about your life. It can sit with you as you sip a cup of coffee and get up with you in the mornings. There is no escape. It doesn't go away. It can become manageable. I promise you, if you have experienced trauma like that, I promise you it can become manageable. Your life can hold meaning and value and joy, and you can have happiness in your life despite all that. You can. There is a place for you. You are worthy of love and compassion, no matter where you are in life. And with that being said, I'd like to thank our Patreon subscribers, 
for making this possible. I'd like to thank the Misfit Amish for helping fund this. And I'd like to thank Rhoda, as always. Thank you for your candor, your openness. I appreciate it. And your compassion. Like, it really means a lot to be able to have these conversations and and to kind of, like, talk about some of the differences. And today's difference, like, woo! <laughs> I hope y'all have a wonderful Saturday and we'll see y'all next time. Mm -hmm.